Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Rodney Asher is a filmmaker and one of the most unique and interesting documentarians working today. His career was kickstarted by an eight-minute doc short called The S from Hell. Side note, this film is awesome. It focuses on this bizarre phenomenon where an entire generation of children were terrified of a seemingly simple corporate logo animation sequence. The 1964 Screen Gems logo is considered as the scariest corporate logo in history. In the movie, we hear firsthand accounts of people who were terrified of the logo and its accompanying music, which was considered by many to be demonic. It's a great watch, and you can easily find it if you just Google the S from hell. Anyway, next, Rodney directs perhaps his best-known documentary, Room 237, which focuses on the exhaustively diverse amount of theories surrounding The Shining. This is another fascinating watch. Rodney's other projects include The Nightmare, a terrifying doc about sleep paralysis, and the El Duce tapes about the shocking frontman of the band The Mentors. His next documentary is A Glitch in the Matrix, which will focus on the idea of simulation theory. This is the belief that all of reality is a digital simulation similar to the Matrix. All of his work is extremely unique and transcends traditional documentary formats. By relying mostly on archival footage to move the narrative forward, hypnotic music, and really unique sound design, Rodney seems to create a palpably cerebral sensibility with his documentaries. They have a really overall cinematic and Kubrick-esque feel to them and are really great and unique watches. The common theme amongst all of his films, from what it seems, is the subjective human experiences, as his documentaries are less interested in being journalistic and investigative and more focused on gaining insights into the human condition through individual perspectives. He's a fascinating filmmaker who I really admire and and am a huge fan of, and I enjoyed speaking with him a lot. Now, here, without further ado, is the great Rodney Asher. Been following your career for a while, and I'm just wondering, from the perspective of breaking in, how did you find your way into making feature-length documentaries? What was essentially your your big break, as it were? My big break was, um, I'd say it was... uh, a short film. Uh, I did a doc in, I think it was 2010, a short one, and I've been working on it probably for two years, to tell you the truth, uh, The S from Hell. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, I mean, I thought it was sort of a late film for me, not a, um, not, not a beginning film, you know, because, you know, I was pushing 40, and I had had a... Um, sort of stop and go career as a, like a music video and TV commercial director. Um, and, you know, had done two or three of those that, you know, that, um, that I was happy with, but they were few and far between. And, you know, previously I had worked as a storyboard artist and, um, you know, camera assistant and, and different things on film shoots and a couple of friends and I from film school, you know, did a bunch of shorts, together like in the 90s um you know this would have been you know just coming out of, out of out of film school you know and we were very into you know like um you know punk rock and um industrial music music videos uh, and the work of you know folks like i don't know richard kern or um you know whoever was doing um 
my early Nine Inch Nails or like Skinny Puppy videos, things like uh, there's a group in Chicago, H-Gun, that was really inspirational to a lot of what we were doing. And, you know, we had a of me and my friend Sid, Sid Garen, um, you know, did a like a Super 8 true crime um, black and white prison film, you know, with a all sock puppet cast. <laughs> and <laughs> that played around, that, that played around a little bit. Um, like the Chicago or the New York underground film festivals. And at a certain point, the two of us went out to San Francisco and we're doing animation. Um, he did this amazing movie with a friend of his, uh, Eric Henry an animated hip hop feature, um, called wave twisters. Mm-hmm which was so incredibly ahead of its time, you know, and they got so deep into, you know, matching, you know, each note of music uh, with uh, animated flourish. That thing was, you know, I don't know how many years in the making. And I was trying to get more back into, into live action stuff and, you know, rolled out into Los Angeles. And, you know, I was, you know, I took another stab at, commercials and music videos and i mean this is i don't know if i need to go over the point by point but it was a very long circuitous path right um and when i did the s from hell i was i had i, I you know i had uh, taken a day job teaching uh, editing class you know, at a film school out here uh, but you know for some you know insane reason you know, the S from hell, you know, which couldn't have been a more obscure, uh, idiosyncratic project, you know, just kind of broke wider than anything I'd ever done, you know, and it, yeah. um, you know, and played at Sundance and, you know, went on a, 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 on, on a pretty extensive festival tour, which it's, um, it didn't. It didn't connect me with anyone, you know, who would, you know, go so far as to finance anything. <laughs> but it certainly was. It, it, it was a huge amount of encouragement at a yeah. point where I was pretty ready to give up. You know, find a job teaching or in a post house or at that agency or you know wherever I could find a, wherever I could find a place. Um, but you know, because of you know the success of the S from Hell, you know, I was motivated to you know, try a feature and, you know, and room 237 was something that me and, you know, my, my friend, my producer, Tim Kirk, um, you know, we're able to do like 90% of it on our own, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I mean, then when that one got into Sundance, you know, that was two years later, you know, and that was really, I think when, well, not I think, I mean, that was when it became a career, you know, yeah. um, you know, and from, you know, and it's, you know, the kind of thing where if you're lucky enough, you know, g- getting a movie into Sundance is a lottery ticket and then getting it to continue to live after Sundance is a second lottery ticket getting it <laughs> distributed is a, you know, it's, you, you just, you, you know, you're just in a, because so many, I, I saw, I've, you know, personally seen so many amazing movies at those festivals, you know, who don't, you know who don't get who don't get that second strike of lightning, right? You know, and it isn't because of the quality of the film. There's a thousand variables, and God knows, you know, <laughs> why why it happens to one and not the other. But you know, two, three, seven, you know, got picked up, and it both, um, you know, 
it, it, you know, it got me on tour where, you know, I met, you know, a ton of people that I'm, many of whom I'm still in touch with and kind of introduced me to the festival community that I didn't really know yeah. beforehand, you know, and, you know, because of, you know, again, you know, like the S from Hell, it's a, you know, insanely <laughs> specific idiosyncratic movie and one that I never imagined was going to play in movie theaters you know i thought it was a movie that was going to play um if i got lucky it might play at a festival but mostly it would play you know at you know art spaces you know right. places with you know 50 folding metal chairs um <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with those places no no that's a circuit that i know and love especially um in san francisco and miami yeah um you know and i and i, and I spent a ton of time when i lived in san francisco at this place artist television access Mm-hmm. run by uh, Craig Baldwin, the experimental filmmaker who, um, I mean, his movies are astonishing found footage collages, but more than that, um, he's an amazing programmer, you know, and there are nights where I'd see two or three hours of stuff that he would program together, new independent shorts and things from his archives. He had to, uh, still has, you know, access to an incredible archives. You know, in those in those screenings are very inspirational. What was his name again? To me, Craig Baldwin. Okay. His, you know, he did features like Spectres uh, from the Spectres, Spectres of the Spectrum. Um, he did a documentary about Negative Land, um, Sonic Outlaws. He's a yeah. He's a, he he studied with and is really like an heir to Bruce Connor. Okay. You know, his other movie, Tribulation 99, you know, sort of the ultimate, you know, insane UFO conspiracy mashup. Right, right. Well, one you know, thing... And Craig and... I'd say Craig and Bruce Conner, both in, in their own ways, were giant inspirations for me in the way that, you know, that they would... The, the way that they would use archive. Yeah, I feel like there's, there's, there's a real nuance to properly using archive to not only cut away to archive, but a use archival footage to drive the narrative of a movie. And it obviously depends on the archival footage and the subject and all of that. But it sounds, it seems like that's kind of, that, that's a staple of, uh, of their overall style. And it sounds like it's something that you've embraced as well. Is there any sort of art to utilizing archival footage that you attempt to uh, utilize from a storytelling perspective because some documentarians can do it just in this very natural way and other ones just kind of can't or don't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's maybe a little bit of a challenge to articulate, but, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the most important thing is you know, finding ways for it to be to, to use it in a way that's not that's not exactly literal, mm-hmm. you know that it isn't the narrator says, um, you know, and we went to Paris and saw the Eiffel Tower and you cut to the Eiffel Tower. Okay. That, um, there's there's like there's the movie there's you know um, Bruce Connors movie um, called A Movie, you know, which is one of the landmarks of found footage films. You know, and he would just do simple things like, you know, cutting from, you know, a Navy, a, a, sub, a, a, a sub commander looking through a periscope to like a bikini girl on a beach. And clearly that's not what he would literally be able to see. But, right. You know, it's very, you know, in conceptually, it's, you know, almost like Soviet style montage one plus, you know, one plus one equals three that right. you connect 
different ideas and to, to to create a third one. And I mean, maybe that example is almost is, is almost literal because you can imagine, you know, they're on the water, she's nearby, but he would, you know, he found ways, you know, of of use of using archive that feels like, I don't know, arch, archetypes, you know, which is, you know, you, you get into you know, the dangerous waters of, you know, pretension, you know, when you're start trying to describe this stuff with like Jungian right. <laughs> vocabulary, but, you know, often in, in those kind of movies in, in the good ones, you know, they find footage that does that doesn't feel like it's just, you know, even if it's like they're using military footage, you know, this soldier is not this one guy. He represents, all soldiers throughout history, or right, he represents the United States of America, mm-hmm. you know, and somehow you're able to get that bigger idea that it's not just the specificity of whatever this thing originally was. Yeah, I know, you know, I think I got, I got my first exposure to that style in, of all things, um, do you remember Down and Out in Beverly Hills? Vaguely do, yeah. I remember when it came out, I think I. I think I saw it. I, I don't remember it clearly. Well, there's a sequence, you know, I think it's Richard Dreyfuss and Bette Midler are, um, you know, a couple, upper upper class couple living in Beverly Hills and Nick Nolte tries to drown himself in their pool. But the moment that really struck me in that is their teenage son aspires to be a filmmaker. And um, what he... And, and, and the kind of filmmaker he is is a he's a found footage filmmaker, you know. And again, in the earlier in the earlier use of the word, you know, mm-hmm. Bruce Connor, Craig Baldwin, even like William S. Burroughs' cutups, he's talking about finding footage, not not the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> right, it's right, right. An amazing movie, but a completely different beast. Yeah, a completely different, different type of found footage. Um, but. You know, so he would like give his, he'd say, dad, this is a video that I just made that expresses what's going on in my head. And it was, you know, like a 20 second montage. It was something very simple. Again, there's probably like sexy girls dancing and nuclear bombs exploding and, you know, Godzilla coming out of the ocean. And it was cut, you know, super fast to, you know, some, you know, propulsive rock track. And, you know, that kind of just struck a lightning bolt in my head, you know, and I didn't want to go back to the regular movie. <laughs> right. That. You know, and Richard Dreyfuss kind of um, rolled his eyes um, <laughs> and, and, and walked away from, from, from that video with a shrug, but I think it was very meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's moments like that, even in um, Clockwork Orange, you know, when, um, you know, Alex is listening to music at the beginning of the movie and he sees visions of, like the Roman columns falling and right. the statues in his room, they're cut like they're marching. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, uh, there's the cavemen who are, and it's reflecting, you know, these big emotional states that are flying through his brain. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd assume that Kubrick was drawing from, you know, some of the sixties era, you know, experimental filmmakers, but mm-hmm. you know, it's a very exciting moment in that movie and not yeah. necessarily, the first place, um, one of the first things that you think of, um, of course, that this has been a, a fairly substantial digression, but no, 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 with movies you. at a, at a place like other cinema in San Francisco, 
mean, that's where I thought 237 was going to was going to play in the same venue where I would see old VHS tapes <laughs> of <laughs> these experimental filmmakers or you know um, uh, strange college students. Cool. Yeah, I feel like the most kind of blatantly over-the-top vulgar expression of that style that you're describing is probably all of Natural Born Killers, where it's just cutaway after cutaway after cutaway. But I think that's what that's what makes the movie so interesting, gives it its energy. Um, one thing I find particularly interesting about your style, and I mean, let's note the fact that as we're talking about inspirations for you as a documentarian, you've mostly mentioned uh, narratives. And what I was going to say is your your documentaries are extremely cinematic. And it I would imagine that the majority of inspiration that you've gotten for your films has have not come from other documentaries, but have come from fictional films. Is that is that uh, accurate? It is. I mean, I have. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd never set out to be, you know, a documentary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the S from Hell was sort of was sort of a documentary. Yeah. And actually, before it, there was one. There was a there was a feature that I had attempted and abandoned um, that I was calling the Collectors, which would have been you know, just interviews with the sort of obsessively focused collectors of most anything and trying to understand, you know, what kind of drives that, mm-hmm. what, what, what drives that energy. And it kind of fell apart. Didn't they turn that into a TV show called hoarders? No, I'm kidding. Hoarders? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I've only been able to bear, I, I, I've never seen an episode of hoarders all the way through. Um, it's tough. It's tough to get through. But it is a fine, it is a fine, it, but it's, you know, I, I, I struggle with that stuff myself. And, you know, one, one of the things I was hoping one of the questions I was hoping to ask is, you know, where do you draw the line between right. being a collector and being a hoarder? And sometimes it's just about how much shelf space, if you have enough shelf space. For <laughs> yeah. There's a part of the, the George Lucas documentary, the people versus George Lucas that gets into just the obsessive star Wars collector fandom mentality. And it's crazy. People spend all of their life savings on, on action figures. So that, that dove a little into it, but it sounds like a, a fascinating topic. Yeah. I, there's a couple of shorts that, you know, I kind of spun it into, but I was never able to get the full feature together. Um, but I mean, if a lot of my inspiration is from narrative or experimental films, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wouldn't say none is, is documentary. And like anyone, you know, Errol Morris, um, was a, was a, uh, certainly, Errol Morris is a much bigger inspiration to me than Michael Moore. Uh huh. Um, you know, and like the Thin Blue Line is certainly a movie that you know again was another lightning bolt. And you know, I've heard him describe what made the reenactments that he was doing in that film so special. You know, and you know what was what what, what was amazing and cinematic about them was. Again, he wasn't just cutting to the Eiffel Tower when someone mentioned it. He he was filming things that people claim to have seen. Mm-hmm. That you know that he wasn't, and he, though he wasn't sure whether or not they were telling the truth. Huh. And 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 I think it was almost the exercise of like you know as he describes that shooting and the witnesses, and then by putting each adding each witness's layer to the previous. You know, you have to, he would return to the reenactment and add another car and another witness and another until revealing, you know, ultimately 
the absurdity of some of them. Right. Um, and, and that was that was, that, that that was really that, that that was really you know unbelievable to me. Um, you know, and there was a film it was like a year and a half ago, maybe now, that Penny Lane did. You know, that I really loved. Um, I'm I'm blanking on the title, but um, oh, I think I know oh, the one you're talking about. It was called The Pain of Others. Oh, I didn't see that. And that one really pushes the definition of documentary. I mean, her the film is a collection of YouTube videos of people who are sort of describing their battles with a disease that the MDA has, you know, is, is not sure whether or not it's real or whether it's psychosomatic. You know, and so the videos themselves are kind of harrowing and it, it, it really pushes the definition because in some ways it's a found footage film. Right. You know, she didn't, she didn't interview these people. She didn't, she didn't film them, but by finding them and putting them in this context and the inter and the intercuts that she made, you know, it's an incredibly powerful movie and it, and it really um, pushes questions about you know, what is a documentary? Right. And I mean, maybe one of the more exciting things about the genre these days is it's very open to interpretation. It's very open to like stretching the format. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe more so than more so than narrative right now. Yeah. It feels like documentaries are having a heyday nowadays. It seems like interest in them has gone up substantially. Um, and I feel like part of that is what you just touched on the fact that the format, it's not as cut and dry as it once was. And there's a lot more room for experimentation. It feels that way anyway. Yeah, and, and that's what that, that that's one of the things that you know is kind of interesting about it. I mean, I, I ultimately, you know, am drawn to filmmaking as a way of making something. You know, I'm, I, I don't, you know, nothing against Michael Moore, but in some ways, I think he's more of a journalist, right? Than I kind of feel. I, I'm trying to, you know, he's, it feels like he's breaking a story. I mean, he's writing and he's, and he's writing his essay, but I'm kind of trying to, I don't know, make a thing. <laughs> yeah. And if your documentaries feel way more exploratory and I remember you saying in, a, in a, another interview that you never approach a documentary with the ending in mind. In other words, you allow the story to kind of unfold naturally so I was curious as to how do you, in terms of like if there's any sort of script equivalent or deliverable that you begin a project with, how, if you don't necessarily know how the story is going to end, what do you prep ahead of time to kind of get you in the right mindset to follow that story? Well, I can't, I mean, I don't know how other people work and I can't really imagine a documentary that knows how it's going to end. Um, unless, I don't know, maybe you're doing a story, you know, you're doing a story about World War II, but even then, right? <laughs> these surprises. Yeah. Um, I mean, the process for right now, I'm working on what. Like, I, I did one with a with, with a friend that we we played last year, which was kind of different from some of the others. But um, this one I'm working on now is very much the same. Um, it, it looks very different from you know, the nightmare or two through seven, but it's the same workflow, mm -hmm. you know, which is to say, you, you know, the, the first step is, you know, is thinking of, you know, who, uh, these are all going to be made, you know, voiceover interviews, you know, with, with a group of folks. And it's like how to find, 
what you know what ca- what category of people do I want to talk to? You know, um, you know, in, there's a little bit of casting, you know, that goes yeah. into that. You know, like in the nightmare, you know, I know I only wanted to talk to people who had had these, you know, sort of intense, extreme episodes of sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. Um, first thing I wanted to mention before I forgot, um, before um, <laughs> continuing at the thread I was on, uh-huh. um, I'd say another uh, another um, documentarian whose work I find incredibly inspirational and is absolutely, um, you know, um, inspirational in my own work is uh, Brett Morgan. Okay, cool. So like the kids days in the picture, um, you know, it was, it was, was a really big movie for me, both because, um, both because of actually the technique itself with, a um, you know, the still images that mm-hmm. were animated, Yeah, you know, the coincidentally, it was something that me and, um, Sid and, and some of our crew had been experimenting with, um, on our own. So we were kind of astonished to see it. Somebody else had done it and better and in a whole movie. Um, so that's but, interesting. You know, also I just, I also just loved the way that this movie was presented as, you know, a funhouse ride into Robert Evans head. Yeah. And it was his perspective only <laughs> his perspective only. And, you know, so, Anything that you didn't, anything that you didn't believe, goes to your understanding of him as a character. Right. Yeah, I loved that too, because I, I feel like a lot of documentarians feel obligated to show multiple sides of a person in pursuit of the truth, which obviously is admirable. But sometimes you just want something that's character driven, and I felt like that was indulgently wonderful in that regard. It was just pure Bob Evans, which I think made it great. I thought it was. I thought it was totally great. Um, you know, and Jane was an, uh, Jane was an unbelievable movie. Um, you know, again, a very single point of view, and mm-hmm. and the way that he took, you know, sort of the National Geographic aesthetic <laughs> that, like, I know from a thousand, uh, you know, magazine covers. Yeah, it just kind of expanded it and warped it and turned it into a psychedelic rock concert. Um, <laughs> that, that move that. You know, that, 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 that movie was amazing. And he, he really takes his time to make, you know, his documentaries, um, you know, these complete sight and sound experiences, mm-hmm. so, which is something I aspire to. Yeah, it makes a huge difference when you have interesting elements beyond the talking heads, beyond just the storytelling. Um, what was that one called? The Devil and Daniel Johnston, I thought, did a beautiful job at illustrating all of his archival stuff and just having all those extra elements that contribute to the storytelling without distracting from it, I think is uh, – I, I feel like that that's what a lot of documentarians need to – of the future need to remember to do. Otherwise, the, it, it can – the usual formats can just kind of get old and tiresome after a while. But, yeah, I'm always always yeah. inspired by how, how – have documentary documentarians tell their stories other than the talking heads. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty big pool, you know, and there's room for, you know, in, in, in different, different stories demand, you know, different approaches. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do love fly on the wall films, though. I don't know that I'd ever be able to do one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the favorite of the, 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 the favorite for me is um, demon lover diary. I've not seen that. Well, it's a pretty difficult film to see these days. 
<laughs> it's um, Joel Krenz, I think is her name is. Um, she 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 was a she was a real hardcore kind of direct cinema documentarian, and her boyfriend got the job shooting uh, as DP on a low budget horror movie. Okay. Um, and the caveat was he would do it for free if she could come along and shoot a behind an all access behind the scenes documentary. And you know it's very rigorously mm. um, like Hearts of uh, Darkness. Yeah, but no, but there's. It's even more. It's like the approach is very is 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 is, is, is much more raw hmm. and dry, and it's a little bit like American Movie. Only it's a hundred times better because um, in Demon Lover Diary, the documentary crew and the horror, and the horror crew despise each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's always fun. It's, and it is tense and horrifying and hilarious, you know, from the from from the beginning to the end. Oh wow! And it's hard to see because they only like want to show. They only like to show it. it you know, they, they are the kind of folks who say this is a film. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be seen on film. This is not a video. This is not a TV show. Yeah. So you have to catch like a festival screening. And I, I was lucky enough to, to see it. Oh, so know, it's not available for the masses. Ago in San Francisco. Okay. There's no commercial release that I know of. Oh, all right. That's a shame that it's not available. Yeah, I'd love to see a Criterion set with that. And, yeah, that would be uh, cool. Yeah, a double a box with that and um, Demon Lover, a.k.a. Coven, the, the, <laughs> the movie they were covering. Right, right. Now, that would be super cool. Um, and the horror movie itself is, is like, well, if you, when you see the documentary, you'll be amazed that the, that the horror feature actually got finished. But... but um, Oh, wow. well, what's one thing that's interesting about low budget movies, a lot of location shooting, um, you know, in non-professional actors. And there's a scene in a bar with a, like some local cover band playing is there's a huge amount of documentary value, even in, even in a feature, you know, but this is what, uh, this is what Detroit was like in 1978 or whenever they were filming. Oh, so it gives a good kind of, it's, it's a, it acts as a time capsule for Detroit during that time period in a way. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds cool. Yeah, I gotta dig that. Up. I'm sure it's it's gotta be somewhere on the internet. It's a spoiler, but they get chased off the set um, at, at the end of the film uh, at gunpoint. Oh my god! I'm it's dying to see this. Wow, it sounds yeah, it does sound like a really just angry version of American movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't think he's a charming. Uh, they they don't think he's a charming, idiosyncratic. Um, Dude, who they that they wish the best for. They, no, they loathe and despise <laughs> each other. It's amazing. I'm going to search high and wide for this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> so, when you approach a project or consider a project, what is your litmus test for whether or not you're going to pursue it? I'm sure you have tons of ideas, but what is is there any sort of either ritual or litmus test you put ideas through to determine I'm going to dedicate the next couple of years of my life to making this, to telling this story? How do you figure out what to pursue? Um, well, there's, I mean, there's what to pursue and then there's what you can get made. I mean, cause you know, after two, three, seven, um, you know, the night two, three, seven was a movie, uh, that, you know, me and Tim did, um, you know, on our own time, um, you know, without it, without any schedule or budget. Um, but you know the nightmare got you know financed and um, you know there was a real team behind it and the same with um, you know the one I'm working on now, so it's both 
so I mean, the two things are it's an idea that I have to that I have to still be kind of stuck stuck on and obsessing with, you know, for over a year or so. Because typically, you know, with these last couple, and I've just kind of vaguely been thinking about things and kind of casually researching them for like a, a year, year and a half um, before like sitting down and making a treatment and and and, and trying to get it made. Um, so it's so it's that combination of um, something that I, that an idea that I can't put down that I'm still interested in, mm-hmm. but also that I'm successfully able to, to convince <laughs> someone else to uh, you know to produce. Got it. Got it. So one thing I'm always fascinated with um, about art directors and artists of all kinds is what is your kind of collection process like? In other words, a lot of directors, they keep these kind of photo books of ideas and concepts and images that they see that can inspire certain things. They kind of keep track of tones and ideas and concepts in different ways. And some people have this digitally with mixes of images and video and stuff in one place. Do you have any sort of collection process? just for things that reflect the tone that you want to go with or, or certain conceptual visual notes or things of that nature? Well, uh, depending on, uh, on how you mean, um, I'm not a, not, not a super focused one. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, as far as, you know, like my book and, you know, movie uh, collection, it's mostly just things that <laughs> I like and I find fascinating. But, what I do do um, before really starting into a project is I kind of make an inspiration reel, mm. right? Um, and it's as much for me to find the stuff that I like and the stuff and see what I don't. But I also share it with, you know, the people I'm working with. Like for the nightmare, I had a 90-minute long, you know, inspiration reel that I forced um, most of the crew to watch with me. Mm you know, that were clips of things that had, that related in one way or the other. Like it might've reflected the art direction or just the attitude or even distinctly, you know, the, or even, you know, as concretely as the, the subject matter, you know, and, and, you know, I did it, you know, for, for the new one too. And, you know, I've pitched, um, you know, and I've, and I've similarly, I've pitched projects that I haven't gotten but, you know, typically I've gone into the room with, you know, a three or four minute reel of, you know, inspiration stuff. And yeah. other clips that I, you know, assemble from in my collection or I find online or, or, or wherever and put them to a music track, you know, that, that does, that does a lot, to, that does a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, but, and, you know, luckily a lot of them stay on a drive, but I, I'm not, you know, actively researching, um, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, with any kind of um, focus or plan. Right. Your films feel very, the tone is very, very well handcrafted. It feels, the, the tone of each movie feels very specific and also very, very unique. From 237 on, you know, I've had the luck, you know, of working with um, Jonathan Snipes, the uh, composer, um, and, you know, his contribution to the attitude, and the tone, you know, and the feeling of the films, you know, can't be, um, can't be overstated. You know, and the funny thing is, after 237, when I was working on The Nightmare, I would use 
I used a lot of cues from two through seven, um, you know, in the uh, in in the rough cut <laughs> as I was working <laughs> on it. Um, and then when I did Primal Scream, I used cues from two through seven in the Nightmare. And oh, interesting. In, and now that I'm working, you know, on a glitch in the matrix, I'm using, there's some other stuff. And he gave me like a, he, you know, he gave, he gave me a folder with a lot of other tracks that he thought might be in the, that, that, that might be in the direction we're talking about. Mm -hmm. but, and I would say, you know, half of the temp tracks and the cut I'm working on now are the stuff that he did from my other projects. Oh, wow. That's but, cool. Um, his his his, his his music just reflects the um, you know the feeling I'm going for just so perfectly yeah well that's great to have such a key collaborator who you just have a shorthand with like that yeah no I, I'm, 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 I, I feel really lucky that we were that, that we were able to, to, to hook up on two three seven um, yeah and, and, and you know his band is really blowing up if you heard uh, clipping. No, is that the name of his band? Is Clipping? Yeah, it's a hip hop band. Oh wow! Um, when David Diggs does is the vocalist, and you know he was the vocalist before he won a Tony for Hamilton. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> oh, that sounds like an all star band. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's Jonathan and Bill. They did uh, two, three, seven together, and um, and David, and it's such an astonishingly like sculpted wall of sound. Um, they're on Spotify. Uh, yeah, they'll blow your eardrums. <laughs> Looking forward to it. It sounds great. Cool. So I know it's early, but what can you tell us about a glitch in the matrix? I mean, I read the overall synopsis of it. I mean, it sounds really, really fascinating. How did you come? I mean, first of all, do you mind just giving your two sentence or however long description of the concept behind it? Cause I'll probably butcher it if I attempt to explain it. Well, I mean the subject, it, it's a film about, you know, people who believe that we're living in a digital simulation, more or less like the matrix. Mm -hmm. And it was an exciting idea for me because it's kind of, I wonder if it might be the end of this cycle because like 237 and The Nightmare are very much about, you know, sort of the subjective experiences and people who look at things maybe differently than you or I do. And we go from looking at film, music, art, et cetera, in 237 to this dreamlike experience, the nightmare to the entire world. <laughs> this one. Um, and, you know, I was pretty late to the game. Um, I only really got discovered um, the idea of simulation theory while I was working on the nightmare. And it turned out that a person I was interviewing for that film um, told me off camera that, you know, what they thought the, you know, sort of um, shadowy entities that they saw during sleep paralysis were, um, were, you know, the people outside the simulation. Mm, like the agents. Yeah. Um, or like the guy, people in um, Dark City. Uh -huh. I forget what they're called. You, you know, who like rearrange furniture while you're asleep. Right, right, right. Yeah. Or like there's a um, VR experience that I did with my, uh, with my kid here um, called the void where you put on goggles and a whole vest and you kind of move through a maze. That's what it has a VR environment mapped over it. 
it's got like a Star Wars one and a oh like yeah a Ralph one and a, and yeah the I did Avengers. the Ghostbusters one yeah okay um, you know, I think there's a really interesting you know kind of metaphor of you know the people who are in the maze the the people who work there who don't have the helmet on right <laughs> <laughs> you know the equivalent of those people in our world right um, you know so that kind of that that that, that got me on. So, so, so that put me on the track. Um, but it was also, um, and, and I think I liked it for the same reason that, like, I found sleep paralysis, you know, really interesting. Um, I mean, I had, you know, a few bouts of sleep paralysis um, and saw, uh, you know, and, and saw a pretty horrifying shadow person. Wow. But this one, I guess in a way, maybe it, it, there's, a, there's a little bit more, it's, Perhaps it's less personal because, you know, previous to the film, I had never gotten really caught up in the question of, you know, is this world fake? Are we living in a, mm-hmm. are we living in a digital creation? Um, but it feels like, um, it, 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 it feels like the next layer out, you know, from the previous projects. Um, and it's, going to look entirely different from well, well uh, I'd, I'd love for as much of it to be a, a surprise as possible as possible when we premiere but it is not going to look anything like it, it's not going to look anything like the nightmare or 237 but um i think you recognize the tone okay cool i can't wait when is any idea when it's going to be out i think we'll be able to premiere this year oh that's great very cool um, is there any sort of, I mean, ha- some people, when it comes to making documentaries, have actual scripts that they write out just to kind of have some semblance of a story guide. Yeah. What do you prepare when you're coming I up do with it, a doc? I do it. I, I do it uh, mine is the opposite. What we do is um, I, I, I do kind of figure out the aspects of the story that I find interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So like in the nightmare, you know, I'd say, in, with, you know, from my own experience and from what I've, um, what, what I've read other people's accounts of, of sleep paralysis, I wanted someone who had an experience where there's someone else in the same room who had it at the same time. Because hmm. I'd heard a couple of those and that seems to go a long way towards saying maybe this is something real and not just a hallucination. Right. Right. And I wanted someone who, um, you know, had it a long time over the course of years. Um, and I wanted someone who had sort of a religious explanation for what was going on, mm-hmm. you know, so that kind of thing, you know, so I had sort of a bullet list of, you know, maybe a, a dozen or so threads and ideas um, that I was hoping to find people that be able to talk, who, who, who'd be able to talk about that stuff. Um, so when we started, you know, figuring out who we wanted to talk to, um, it'd be like, oh, okay, here's somebody who had, you know, that, you know, had that, that double experience. Here's somebody who's had it ever since they were a kid and it happens all the time. Here's somebody who, it, you know, it happened this way or they believe this or they believe that. Yeah. So there's a little bit of casting up front, mm-hmm. you know, as a way of. You know, because like when I was reading up on simulation theory, you know, I, I have, you know, I had pages and pages of different ideas that it's related to, you know, that I, was, that I didn't want to 
I didn't want to read this out in voiceover, but I wanted someone, I was trying to find someone who had an experience that would get them to talk about that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So that's the closest thing to a script at the top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there was a discussion of, you know, how's this going to look like? You know, what have we got? Like, you know, the nightmare very early on, it was, we're going to do, you know, dramatic. We're going we're, we're gonna to do filmed reenactments. Although it wasn't until, you know, the midpoint when we decided to do them in that all in a, all in a stage in that particular way. Um, so the casting is this finding people of who, who can speak to different aspects of the story, you know, is the, is the big thing that we do at the top and then have kind of a general notion of how are we going to bring this story to life? And two, three, seven is all archives. You know, the nightmare is mostly, um, mostly reenactments and we would interview people at night. Um, Matrix, uh, you will have to see, but it's a different approach. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different approach. Um, So from there, what I do is, you know, try to do those interviews as quickly as we can with as many people as we can. Then if I interview somebody for two hours, you know, uh, me and um, sometimes I have a partner. I had a a co-editor on this one would kind of listen to the interview and say, all right, this person, you know, talked for two hours. Here's the four or five interesting things they said. Mm-hmm. And we would cut like a little two or three minute sequence for each of those things. Right. So that's so now in my, you know, editing uh, desktop, you know, I would say, it says Nick. And then there's in the folder, there's six little sequences that are each a couple minutes long of talking about different aspects that each get it and they each get a title. Mm-hmm. Then we just grind out as much of that as we can for a long time. And we go as far as putting temp music and doing and intercutting some some B-roll into that so that each of these pieces are kind of watchable and kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, sort of the closest thing to a script is, you know, you know, put those all on little post-it notes, you know, and if there's, 15 people who each have nine things they had to say, I don't know, like 150 or 120 little, little, little squares we get. Mm-hmm. And then it's arranging them into finding connections, arranging them into clumps, um, and then chapter, uh, and, 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 and then chapters, you know, so then at the end of it, you know, we'll probably use 30% of all those, you know, sequence that were sequences that were kind of rough together. Yeah. And it's only in that it's only in that stage where a sequence starts to starts to appear, and sometimes somebody says something. And that's actually this happened all three times. Um, like in two, three, seven, when John Paul Ryan said, um, you know, and and it's weird because I'm living in this house and there's a big staircase and we're getting ready to move across the country and he could I I, I feel like I'm slowly turning into. Jack Torrance. Right. I think when he when, when he said that, I, I I knew that that was that that was almost certainly going to be the ending. Yeah. Um, but somebody turning into Jack Torrance because of you know in a, possibly because of how much time they're spending <laughs> shining is a very interesting ending, and it's a much more interesting ending to me than in this is what the shining means. Right. Right. And in the nightmare, you know, Chris says. 
I think because of you know these problems I have you know breathing while I'm sleeping um, during sleep paralysis that I might die because of this. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I wouldn't get rid of it if I could because it's given me a glimpse beyond the veil. It's allowed me to see things that other people don't see, that other people can't see. Yeah. And the moment I heard him say that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's probably the ending. Yeah. Yeah, I said, wow, that's heavy. And I was hoping that I was going to be able to do just almost like a two-minute single take, just shot, you know, just shot of his head saying all that in a way of defaulting to a very, very standard, unaffected, um, documentary quality for the ending. But it wound up not working exactly like that at the end of the day. Um, and in this one, um, you know, somebody said something that at the end I said, that's, you know, that's a pretty cool, that could be a pretty cool ending. So <laughs> that, that happens and you remember that, you know, yeah. no matter how, what, everything else that you do and then you play it back and then you, you know, however long it takes to get that sequence cut, you say, that was that as good as I thought? Is that as, did that have as big of an impact? Um, you know, and I have to say, you know, I had to give credit to uh, Ross Dinnerstein, who produced The Nightmare in this one, um, you know, that he was, he, he gave, you know, he gave me enough rope <laughs> to do that, <laughs> you know, to, and to figure out what this movie was going, you know, because early on I was like, this is the subject. These are the kind of stories I'm hoping I can find people to tell. Here's an idea for what it might look like, but you know, that's going to evolve as we find out what the stories are and what people say, you know, and, um, you know, there was a, you know, enough of a trust and confidence to let us figure it out as we, as we went along. So the, yeah, the endings just sort of present themselves. Well, the whole, everything, everything, everything does. (laughs) Yeah. It's fascinating that you kind of do a pre edit in a very tangible way with physical post-its. And I'm assuming you're doing it all on a whiteboard and things like that. I mean, just in this age of digital technology, I mean, I personally have to think through certain things that way, particularly when you're making connections between different potential details and narrative arcs and things like that. It's, it seems like that can, with certain people on a certain level, that can only be done with physical, tangible cards because you have to mix things around and move things. Is that a big part of your process is doing things by, by hand? Yeah. Well, I mean, this one in particular is a very digital project, but like that kind of thinking, of that kind of big picture thinking can only be done that way. I yeah. Mean, I suppose, you know, Tom Cruise, Minority Report computers, you could do it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you still see him like waving his arms. Right, right. <laughs> physical kind of a thing, but you know, just just to be able to to to, to be able to see, to see that much stuff and to be very and to very quickly be able to, to to move it around. Yeah, you know, you know, hypothetically, it'd be possible in some seven, eight foot long um, computer screen that's touch sensitive, but. <laughs> I don't know if that, that'd be easier and quicker. I got it. Um, but yeah, I mean, because that's, for me, that's been the bigger, the, the one of the bigger efforts in all these projects has been to find, to, to find that, um, the through line, right. you know, to discard and the, you know, the, there's, the, there's a lot of pain in discarding things that are really cool and really interesting. Yeah. But, block the pathway between A and B. Hmm. And then 
uh, and then an opportunity to find the, and then they don't find another path. They don't find another slot right. on the stream where they fit. Um, you know, and I and I think because the way I kind of picture these is, but they're not the clo- they're not the final statements. Uh, they're they're on on these subjects. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty more scholarship to be done about The Shining. Right. There's a lot, and there's a lot of more complicated aspects of sleep paralysis that I don't have, I don't feel an obligation to get every idea about about the subject in there. These don't have to be the Wikipedia articles about the subjects. This is this is more about capturing you know, what the atmosphere of what it's like to be kind of stuck inside them. Yeah. And I feel like that is a pitfall that a lot of documentarians accidentally fall into is they feel like their documentary has to be the end all be all depiction of a certain topic. When in fact, it's way more interesting if it's either through a particular perspective or if it's character driven or like that, but to take that pressure off yourself to say, this doesn't have to be everything that needs to be said on the topic of X, Y, or Z. That's got to just enable you to be able to see and discover the really compelling elements of your project as opposed to just getting caught up in being comprehensive. No, that's the plan anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last few questions here. So obviously when it comes to directing and filmmaking, there's a lot of resources and books on the topic. um, And a lot of them are known to be done by people who haven't actually done what they're writing about. But that being said, are there, were there any resources or books that were particularly formidable for you as a, as an artist or as a filmmaker, either from the perspective of establishing your creative process or learning about the business? Was there anything that was particularly helpful for you in any regard when it comes to filmmaking that you'd recommend? Um, yeah, there's a couple, um, not a ton. Um, Walter Murch's book, um, I think it's in the blink of an eye. Yeah, it's a great one about editing theory. Um, you know, and, he, 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 and it's, you know, and it's great cause it's not about, you know, it's not about the technical, you know, it's about, you know, the, you know, sort of the, um, what, what is editing? It's about editing as a language, mm-hmm. you know, and what does it mean? Um, that's a really good one. David Mamet, um, has a couple of, good, of books of, I don't know that I've ever been able to really implement his advice, but I like found his directing film and, um, on writing books uh-huh. to be um, pretty super sharp. Okay, great. Um, I used to be a storyboard artist, and I still kind of do scrawly storyboards of my stuff. I don't have the book here, but um, there was a book that was describing itself as a, as a directing book, but it was actually really a good prep to storyboards called um, these directing shot by shot. I think hmm. and it's just full of great illustrations of here's how you can, here's how to frame five people in one conversation <laughs> kind of a thing, which, you know, until you sat down and you said, all right, we've got five people talking where do I put them and where do I put the camera. Um, it has, you know, <laughs> it, that it, sounds it has helpful. Great examples of that. Yeah. Um, filmmaking shot by shot. I think it's called, I believe okay. the writer's first name is Steven. Um, and then I might say that, um, what was it? Um, Red Letter Media's review, feature length review of the Star Wars prequels. Ooh. Really? Were, well, yeah, I mean, they did amazing things about kind of focusing on what's important. Um, I, can't, I mean, I like the prequels more than they do, more, more than those guys did. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think there's a lot of interesting ideas in them. Okay. Um, but but there's a piece in there where they break away and they interview like their friends and they say, um, uh, without describing what they look like or what their job is in the movie, describe these Star Wars characters. You know, and let's say Han Solo and somebody says, oh, you know, he's, um, you know, a smart aleck and he's mischievous. He's generally a nice guy, but he wants you to think he's a badass. And they go on and on and on and on. Um, and, you know, then they say, Creek on Jin. It's like, who? <laughs> I think, you know, Liam Neeson in The, in, in the Phantom Menace. Oh, uh, Stoic? <laughs> Queen, Queen, Queen Amidala. Oh, well, she's got that lips. Don't tell me what she looks like. Mm. <laughs> that, it was it, 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 it was a very like really potent reminder about um, you know care about <laughs> about character. Yeah, um, well, here's the filmmaking book. It's called Film Directing Shot by Shot by Stephen Katz. Okay, I'll check that out. Oh, I might also suggest um, Shock Value by John Waters. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's a good. I mean, I, I like I, I like to flatter myself. You know, when I was in school, that I was pretty punk rock. So. John Waters was an early hero. Nice. Was there anything that you wish you knew going into your your first feature that would have saved you a significant amount of time, heartache, or capital? Anything? Any rookie errors that aspiring documentarians or filmmakers should be aware of that you wish you knew ahead of time? Well, I would go back to the collectors. Um, two through seven, you know. Um, Sort of made it sort of sense. I was able to get my head around what we were doing pretty quickly, uh-huh. um, you know. But the collectors collapsed because um, I didn't really know what it wanted to be about, and the uh, and the topic was too wide. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is going to tell everything about every kind of collector in the world, <laughs> and, and at a certain point. You know, after I had a half dozen you know, kind of interesting interviews, I just got sort of paralyzed by how many choices or how these were all going to go together. They didn't really go together in any, in, 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 in any normal way. Last question. So, I mean, you, other than docu- documentaries, you moved on to some narratives like haunted, horrifying sounds from beyond the grave. Um, what are you working on next? Are you going to stick with documentaries? Are you going to do some narrative fiction? I mean, what uh, what would you like to do? Yeah, next? I'd love to, uh, my I, you know my ambition is to, would be to do narrative fiction after this, um, but you know I'm exploring documentary as well. As well. I'm hoping that um, I don't need to choose between the two, but mm-hmm. you know, but no, I'm absolutely interested in. Um, you know, in in, in in doing some more straightforward narrative projects as well. Got it. Maybe not. Maybe not completely straightforward. Mm-hmm. Do you want to stick in the kind of horror genre? Most likely, horror, yeah. science fiction. You know, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, th- th- those are still the th- those are still the films that really capture my imagination for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, cool. Rodney, this was this is a real pleasure. I mean, like I said, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. So this this is a tremendous honor. Thank you for taking the time. This was well, great. Well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate that. All right. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Rodney Asher. Number one, don't try to make the end-all, be-all documentary on a topic. 
Rodney's films have a very particular and unique style and tone, and his signature as a director is very recognizable and unique. His films are some of the most cinematically interesting documentaries ever made. One of the reasons he's able to have such a clear voice and vision as a documentarian is that Rodney is unencumbered by the obligation to be clinically comprehensive. In other words, Rodney's less interested in being journalistic and attempting to exhaustively cover every single detail about his topics. No, instead he picks a particular perspective and follows that instead. This kind of focus can make for a compelling and subjective documentary, as opposed to one that feels like a Wikipedia article. Number two, create story reels to establish the tone of your movie. This goes for documentarians and filmmakers of all kinds. Film is such a visual and tone-specific medium. It's critically important to be able to be a visual communicator to all of the many people you'll collaborate with. One of the best ways to communicate your vision behind your film is to create video reels. Video reels are comprised of clips, segments, music, and tonal references edited together that reflect elements that you want to emulate in your project. Obviously, this means that you'll need to learn how to edit. Rodney spoke about how he would create feature-length reels with selections from multiple films and pieces of footage that he would review with his editors and DP to make sure everyone was making the same movie. This is a great tip to keep everybody on the same page and in line with your vision. Number three, edit by hand. When he's putting together his films, Rodney distills all of the sound bites, scenes, and themes into tons of post-it notes and then groups them into clumps by hand to find the commonalities and connections between ideas. Films typically are the brilliant assembly of a number of seemingly disparate parts. It's the way that you connect the dots and artfully impart your point of view that truly makes you a director. With so many elements that have to come together, the process of editing by hand can enable certain connections and breakthroughs between different ideas that simply can't happen digitally. Maybe they can. But for some people, me included, the ability to pick up note cards and shuffle them around can be extremely helpful in making connections, discovering through lines, and ultimately discovering your movie. Anyway, guys, thank you again, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and wherever you listen. And thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.